this week on Writers Inc. Yeah, I'm sure there are you know, people who can start off doing that. Um, I mean, like Mark Danieluski's first novel, right? I mean, that was his start was House of Leaves. Yeah, so I mean, for me, it's always, you know, for as much as I employ sort of typographical, you know, experimental tricks for lack of a better term, and I don't mean trick either because it sounds like it's cheap, like it's a twist, but you know, whatever I do, my hope is that it has to be there. Like I can't, like I couldn't have just taken it out and not have the story change. Like, I think the story would have been a lot different if I had taken Mercy's marginalia comments out of the book. It wouldn't be the same book. I mean, so that's always, for me, that's the abiding concern is, okay, you know, I, I know I want to do like cool, weird things like that, but it has to be there for a purpose. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hello, hello. It's uh, it's great to see you, Zach. What's up? How you doing today? Oh wait, Zach's not here. All right, are we gonna have a show like where all four people actually show up on the same day? Zach must have quit. He's not here, so he therefore he must quit. So everyone needs to email Zach and ask him if he's okay and ask him why he quit the podcast. <laughs> Speaking of quitting, my voice is quitting again. So, yeah, like, what are you doing, man? Are you like are you are you running around the neighborhood? Are you are you like filling in for Axel Rose? What's going on with you? I honestly, I don't know what caused it this time. I mean, last time my, my daughter came home with a bug from school, um, you know, so she was sick, then my wife was sick, and then I was sick. It happens all the time, and then I, I tend to lose my voice from that. But like, I've been fine. Um, this morning, I just got up, and it just it sounded weird, and you know, it's just it's fading. Like I did an, an interview um, about 20, 30 minutes ago. I wrapped that up, and that was another hour of talking. So that didn't help. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be quiet, which is probably, we're going to get tons of mail from everybody saying it's the best episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Christine? Are you healthy? I'm good. I'm healthy. You know, I was just saying 11 more school days until the break as we're recording, everything is going around everywhere. Everyone is sick, but as of right now, I'm healthy. So I'm just hoping it stays that way for the holiday. Good, good. <laughs> Hey, J.D., we should shout out Anthony Horowitz. Uh, we had a nice time with him on Sunday morning. We were doing a uh, sort of a little panel roundtable for it. Uh, a, was it a literary festival in India, I believe, Mumbai? I don't, yeah, it was I don't a liter- literary festival. Um, I'm still trying to figure out the time difference. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning here, and it was like 9.30 at night over there. And um, But yeah, Anthony's always fun to talk to. I mean, the guy's been doing this for forever, and he's just a, a complete wealth of knowledge. Yeah, we'll have to see if we can get a link. Um, I, don't, I don't know if they're posting that publicly or if that was a paid event but if we can find a link we'll definitely drop it in show notes so people can check it out because uh, yeah he's quite a character good guy yeah absolutely um I, I think that I, I was trying to figure out what's going on with the Harper Collins strike. As far as I can tell, everything is still they're they're still on strike. It's day twenty one, um, but I, I did get a couple of emails today from people related to Harper Collins, so that you know I, I think maybe somebody's caving there. Maybe there was a resolution. I'm hoping there was a, re- a resolution anyway, um, or maybe it's just a fluke. I don't know. Um, and I from a I guess from a writing professional standpoint, I've been slogging through the, that Lee Child masterclass. Um, I, slogging is obviously not the right word. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying it but it's 35 videos. So I'm just doing like one of them a day. Um, you know, it's sort of like a, a you know, piece of wisdom, a day calendar with Lee child kind of thing. Um, he mentioned something today that I thought was really cool. He, he said that if he paints himself into an, an impossible corner, um, like as he's writing, cause he's a pantser. So he just kind of creates this, these scenarios. If he does that, he doesn't go back and change anything to get out of it. He just stays there and keeps working the problem until he finds a way to, to actually solve it. Um, regardless of how difficult it actually is. And, you know, thinking back after reading all the, the, the Jack Reacher books, like you can see that there. Um, and you know, it honestly, it makes it a better, book because he's got this crazy ridiculous you know situation and reacher's got to get out of it and he finds a way to get him out of it every, every single time so you know his, his general thinking was if you go back and you rewrite you know take something out of the book you add something early in the book to, to help you out you know place a gun somewhere where it wasn't before whatever the, the situation might be um, you're cheating yourself and you're cheating the readers out of what could be a better story if you actually try to solve the problem so i'm going to kind of keep that in mind myself when i'm when i'm writing yeah it's, it's interesting um because I've been thinking about that a lot. I'm uh, almost 
almost done with my mainstream thriller. I, I did a, a another big uh, draft today, another big revision. I mean, this week, and you know, and one of the, and I, this was. I also thought about something that Anthony said to us on Sunday about writing mysteries. And I wonder if mystery is a little different than say like a, like an action, uh, an action story, because as I'm writing this mystery, I'm like, there's no way I could have pants this. Like, even if I wanted to, th there's no way, like if I didn't have the crime figured out, if I didn't know the motivation behind it, if I didn't know, you know, why the made players were doing what they were doing. If I just sat down to a blank page, I just, I, I just don't think I have the capability. And I, and I wonder how many like really conventional mystery writers are plotters versus pantsers. Well, you know, honestly, like I, the only way I reason I can do it is because I'm autistic. Like I, I know that I can, like, I can see the end of the story. I can see every line in between. I remember all of it. I, you know, I, I tend not to forget, you know, the different threads. Um, you know, I, I, it's the same reason other people like they, they, you know, you, it, I have an outline basically, even when I'm pantsing a novel, it's just, it's in my head. Um, and Lee Child, I think is the same way. He's, he's an extremely bright guy if you ever talk to him. Um, you know, so he, he may say he's a pantser. He may say he's making it up as he goes. Um, but he's got every single thread in the back of his mind that he's already written. And he knows where each of those threads are going to a certain extent. Um, you know, pantsing for me is, is almost like driving through the fog, you know, like you, basically you're you can see just a little bit ahead of you um and that's kind of how the writing process works um to a certain extent but i i do have certain road signs that i i know are coming i know you know this particular turn is coming later on and and, and i know he's you know he's not approaching it completely blind um it, that being said like you know one of the reasons why i do like outlining especially now that i'm starting to work with other co-authors like i'm really seeing the benefit in that because you know we've got them putting together these outlines we're able to go through completely tear them apart you know just highlight the stuff that's working, ditch the stuff that's not, go back in, fill in the blanks, and just completely fine-tune it. And, you know, you can add a character, you can add a storyline, you can take something out. Um, it, it takes you 10, 15 minutes, you know, to do it with an outline versus trying to do that in a, in a book that you've already written. I mean, trying to unravel something in a story you've already got down on paper can be a nightmare. Um, and things, you know, things sometimes even get left behind. I've, I've written or read uh, finished manuscripts before, finished books, you know, where a thread was, you know, they left a little kernel of it, you know, in the book. The editor missed it and the author missed it um you know that kind of thing happens all the time too so yeah i think when you're when plotting it out especially if you're if you're just starting like this is a mystery novel it's new to you um i think having a, a roadmap is definitely a, a plus yeah yeah for sure what are you working on christine um i'm actually working on some outlines right now so it's good timing i've always been an outliner um you know i try different things i've tried to move more hybrid so it's not as detailed so there's more room for that kind of surprise and creativity but I'm kind of going back to the more hardcore outlining and just thinking about oh what's maybe 12 different things I could do here that are a surprise and you know I think you're always evolving and always playing but definitely it's how do you up that tension and that dread and and those surprises for the readers so that's kind of what I'm working on or you just have AI write your book <laughs> Well, Jay, you and I were going back and forth on the mysteries, and like I, I told you, you need to go out there and read like all the Agatha Christie books, right. which I, which I know are old, but like in a lot of ways, they, they're the roadmaps. I think that you know a lot of us have, have learned from, like they're kind of the, the gold standard. Um, I'm honestly not sure if she was an outliner, um, and I'm gonna see if I can figure that out when we get mm. off of this. Um, yeah. But I, I'd be willing to bet she was. Same thing with like Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was only half joking about AI. Like, I, I don't want to open that can of worms, but I, 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 we have to mention that I don't know if either of you have played around with, uh, was it the chat, chat GBT? Is that what it's called? <laughs> I, I actually tried it. Um, so I, I listened to Joanna's podcast while I was out on a run. Um, and then that night I got back and I, I keyed it in. Um, I started typing in what I, I vaguely remember her saying were the prompts that she used. Um, and it kind of started off, you know, following the, you know, the same trail that, that she had mentioned. Um, but then I immediately, like, I don't pay for the service. So I got a, a block saying, you know, you've made too many requests, try again later, like something like that. So I wasn't able to dig into it as far as she did. Um, but in her podcast, you know, if, if it works the way that she says, like she basically created a blurb, right. And then she expanded on that blurb and then she told it to create a, I think a 25 chapter outline. Um, and from my, the way I, I understood it, it actually did it. Um, but yeah. I haven't been able, I haven't been able to get the system to do that. Have, have you? Yeah. I, I sent a, a zombie story to Zach. <laughs> I went in and said, I told it, I said, can you please create a, you know, a 50 chapter outline for a zombie outbreak with a, some main character who broke out of a jail, some, something like that. And it, and it did. And like, you know what, it wasn't, 
and I, I don't know, like, I don't know how to judge what it came up with because what it came up with was kind of spot on, but it was sort of like an aggregate of all zombie stories. And it, in a way, it sort of like watered it down. It was sort of like a generic zombie story, but I could see like taking that outline and really starting to like rip it apart and move things around and change things. But like to give you a starting place, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I messed around with a different one, uh, pseudo right, but I only did the trial and I just wanted to see what it was like. So I put in a prompt and said, let's make a chapter with this. And honestly, it really didn't make a lot of sense. It wasn't very good. <laughs> um, but I can see how you could use it maybe for inspiration to at least get you started if you're you're blocked or something like that. But I was like, well, I'm not losing my day job to this AI, but maybe I'll have to try the other one. <laughs> so, Jay, are you paying for the service? No. No. Not. Okay, so I, I I don't know what the deal is. I'll have to go back in and, and try yeah. it again. It, you I mean, know what? It, might, it just might have been volume. I know there's a lot of people hitting those servers right now. I mean, the impression that I got from it, um, the, the the few prompts that were returned to me, it, it's almost like brainstorming an idea with a second person in the room. Um, so it's it's not it's not going to read your mind. It's not going to give you thoughts that you would have had. Um, but it, you know, it, it does give you thoughts, and that that might take you off in a direction that you may not have considered before. So I guess from that standpoint, it's good. Um, but I mean, if you think about the the process, the way that it's actually being created, the way that it's being taught, you know, for for lack of a better word, um, it, it's never going to be able to divert from the material that it's been fed it's always going to sound like something else because that's all it can do um you know that the, the the day that it actually learns to create something you know and gets an actual spark of imagination is probably you know I, I i think when skynet did that i think six minutes later it decided people weren't necessary anymore <laughs> like it, be, it became self-aware so like that's the day that this ai is going to become self-aware and it's going to realize it doesn't need to write books for us anymore it needs us to be fuel <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we'll leave it at that. Ho hopefully that, that's <laughs> not the case. Uh, I just want to make a quick announcement. Um, if you're listening and you're anywhere near an alcoholic beverage, get ready because I have a new podcast. Now, no, wait. So drink. Okay. Have your drink. Now, here's, here's the explanation. Uh, I was helping my, our, our friend, friend of the show, Jeff Elkins, a dialogue doctor. Several years ago, he was he was kind of struggling with his writing and he was having some financial issues and I ended up mentoring him or coaching him for a number of months and we recorded those conversations just because like it's, you know, it's good to have the the recordings. And then uh, I kind of, I kind of rediscovered them recently and I was listening back to them and I was like, I went to Jeff and I'm like, man, there's, there's a lot here that could help people who are looking to like start a little business or a side hustle or they want to generate some extra revenue, especially this time of year. So I got his permission and, uh, and I just uploaded it as a as like a limited edition podcast. There's only like twelve or thirteen episodes, and it, it spans a few months. And then there's um, and then Jeff and I talk about sort of like where he is now because this was back in like early 2020 we were talking. So if you're interested, especially if you have like an author services idea or you're, you have an existing online service business, um, it's called the Author Life uh, Podcast. There'll be a link in the show notes. And like I said, it's just me and Jeff kind of talking and me helping him through a lot of the business stuff and. Uh, and you can kind of hear where he is now. So it was a lot of fun. All right. Uh, let's get to our business here and then we'll uh, get to our guest. I want to remind you that if you're looking for a website, head on over to wordandpixel.com. They did the Writers Inc. website and we love it. So check it out. Also, a wonderful thank you and shout out to our sponsors, Kobo Writing Life. They empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Remember, with Kobo, you get to set your price, you keep all your rights, you get monthly promotional opportunities, and all of that without any exclusivity. Link in the show notes or head there directly by going to KoboWritingLife.com. JD, who is up this week? This week, we've got Paul Tremblay. He's the award-winning author of, of uh, numerous books at this point, um, including my personal favorite, A Head Full of Ghosts. Uh, his latest is called The Pawberries Club, and it released earlier this year. Here he is, Paul Tremblay. Paul, I don't know if you realize this or not, but you have um, you've, uh, jeopardized any sort of backstage pass for, for poison um, because you used the term hair metal in the description for The Pawberries Club, and Ricky Rocket hates that term. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, uh, well. You blew it, man. <laughs> I blew it. Uh, we were well, definitely... Oh, what, that was, was, what was that? I was going to say, what, what term does he prefer? 
I, I don't know. Like I just, I just yeah. saw this tweet. It was like, you know, it was hair metal, you know, it wasn't about the hair. It was about the music. And I'm like, eh, yeah. what are you going to do? You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not like it's all that relevant anymore. Anyways, who cares? No. <laughs> I would say point of fact though, they did spend a lot of time on their hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Right. <laughs> Uh, man, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you uh, about Paul Bear's Club. I would say this is uh, one of my top three books of the year. I just oh, thank you. loved it, man. I, I so loved it. I want to I get deep into it. Um, I appreciate well, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, I think what's cool is like you and I have known each other for years and we've had a few interviews. So I feel like I can kind of get right into the meat of the stuff um, and, right. and dispense with the, you know, with the setup. I was, <laughs> I was listening to um, your most recent uh uh, appearances on the this is horror podcast and and you said something kind of in passing and it really caught my attention and if you're not comfortable going here i'm, I'm totally sure. i'm totally fine but i want to ask you about it yeah uh, we're both the same age and you said something in there when they asked you about your sabbatical and balancing your writing and your teaching you you said mm -hmm. i'm just kind of tired <laughs> I, what, what do you mean by that um well, I mean, part of it was definitely in reference to, you know, the pandemic that we've all lived through and continue to live through. And I don't know, those, you know, my school is a small school, but we went back to in-person teaching probably as early as any school in the country did. We went back September of 2020 in person. You know, so I spent two years in masks and, um, you know, teaching online was its own special hell. <laughs> and, you know, for the kids, it was much better for them you know, I could see it. It was much better for their mental health to be in person. So it was always like this weird balance, like, well, you know, what about the health of everybody? And <laughs> what about the mental health of the kids? But it was just a stressful couple of years. You know, my school, I thought, you know, overall did a very good job, you know, because we're a private school, they were able to pay for like a lot of testing and stuff like that. But it was, it was just, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, with, with everything, with the pandemic, the politics, and, you know, specifically to what I was going through, just, you know, the teaching in person, and then you know, writing a pretty deeply personal book, you know, I just, yeah, I just felt tired. Yeah. You know, parts of my age too, you know, it's just not, as they say, a spring chicken anymore. Yeah. If I ever was. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, that's, uh, and, and that's why I wanted to ask you about it because I've been, I've felt a lot, a lot of the same things, um, in, mm. and when I started doing some reading on it, uh, there's a, there's a lot of scientific evidence that suggests that your, your sort of intellectual peak is your mid thirties. And that you have what's called like this, you know, there's the difference between like fluid intelligence versus crystallized intelligence. And fluid is what you have when you're younger. And right. then as you get older, your ability to think fast decreases, but your, but your ability to make connections increases. And that's where mm. this idea of wisdom comes in. And as I started reading this and I st I'm trying to figure out like, am I tired because of the past couple of years and the politics and the pandemic? Or am I just losing ambition because I'm getting older? <laughs> no, that's a great question. I, I, it's funny, like I've been um, sort of on the other side of things. The thing that like a new experience for me is like, you know, I guess I've been a writer for a while. Like it's not like, you know, usually you think, oh, like I'm this new writer, you know, and now I've got, you know, a whole bunch of books. And so like, no, I'm not a new writer anymore. Um, and that's just like a weird thing. Like, oh, there are going to be people that, you know, there's tons of people who don't like my stuff in general, but even for the people, but for the people who do like my stuff, they like some books and not other books. And I don't know, it's just like a weird thing to think about. I try not to think about it too much because um, it just gets in the way of what I'm going to try to do next. But I guess all that is to say is like, hey, like, especially something like the Paul Bearers Club, I feel like, hey, I put all this work in, you know, I've been writing for, you know, we'll call it like, you know, just slightly over 20 years seriously. Um, it's like, you know, I feel like I can do some cool stuff now, you know? <laughs> Uh, and it's just been weird to see like who's on board with it, who's not on board. And, you know, thinking about readers, like are readers in general, like this one thing that stays static. Whereas like as a writer, you feel like, oh, I'm getting better. I can do cooler things. But, you know, do readers change? Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't have the answers to those. Those are just like weird things that, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, because as a writer, you want to try different things. You don't want to be doing the same thing every time. Yes. Uh, you know, like, I don't know. I mean. It's different than music because, I mean, music is written and presented and for the most part. Obviously, there are musicians who play like 20 minute songs. I'm not talking about those, you know, people, but, you know, in short bursts, you know, I, you know the punk fan of me, you know, weirdly likes bands that sort of keep their sound and like, and not, you know, like anybody else, like, oh, man, they sold out or they, you know, went too, too off of what they've been doing. 
but I, I totally get it now. It's like, why would, you know, why would they want to do the same thing over and over again? Yeah. Um, you know, there's that urge to try something different. Um, but at the same time, I think most writers tend to be drawn to like the first things that you did as a musician or a writer or a painter or whatever. So I don't know. It's a weird, like morphe oozy relationship. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to think about too much, but clearly I am. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's because you have all this, uh, all this, I'm um, putting this in air quotes, time right. now that you're on sabbatical, right? Too much time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, knowing your history, I think it was, was it the mid to late nineties you started writing thrillers? I mean, you've been at this a long time. Uh, well, mid to late nineties for me was, I was first learning how to write. So it was just, you know, horror short stories. Um, and they weren't very good. You know, I saw like my first professional sale, maybe like 2000, 2001. Okay. Um, you know, professional sale being three cents a word. Um, so like I sort of count like, you know, the first five years of the nineties, I was just learning how to like even write a sentence that made sense. I won't say that I know how to use commas, especially after I just got my copy edits and the copy editor is like, yeah, you don't know how to use commas, essentially. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I have been doing it for a while, uh, slowly but surely, you know, the tortoise that I don't know if I'm going to win the race, but at least trying to stay in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a sort of a good transition into the Paul Bears Club. Um, I know that this was the first book of a new book deal. And uh, you, I think you had said you had a, maybe a little bit of trepidation that uh, when you were pitching the book to your editor that it, they were not going to, they were not going to want it, but, but they did. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, I think more of my trepidation was like, I tried to warn them because the two prior books, The Cabinet at the End of the World and Survivor Song had a lot of thriller elements to them or thriller setup. I mean, at least in terms of, I guess the pace, although I hate that word. <laughs> People use it all the time and I don't think they understand what they mean by pacing of a book. But anyway... Um, thriller elements, at least in terms of like the the time frame over which the book takes, right? Cabin's like 24 hours and, you know, Survivor Song, aside from a few little trips here and there, it's really six hours, you know, and so this book was going to be a lot more, I knew it was going to be a lot more introspective and it was going to take its time and sort of go over like a much longer time period. So, you know, I figured my publisher would go for it, but I kept trying to say to them, it's like, hey, this is not a thriller, you know, because I think they were sort of into the idea of uh, promoting me as a thriller writer or a psychological suspense thriller, um, you know, because there are more readers as much as, you know, as horror is doing pretty well, that's, that's where they want to go. And actually, I think that ended up being a problem a little bit with their marketing was that, you know, it was like, hey, you know, it says psychological suspense on the book. It doesn't say anything about horror or, or I don't know, maybe the literary aspects of it as well. <clears throat> so I can understand if there's like <laughs> readers who want to read David Baldacci, is that his name? Yeah. Or, you know, you know, those kind of thrillers are going to be disappointed in the Paul Bears Club. There <laughs> was a lot of reviews like, this is boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for a listener who may not have heard of the book yet, give, can you give us the, the high level overview? Sure. So um, the book is a found memoir of a character who like he uses different names. He named himself Art Barbara because that sounds funny in a Boston accent. Um <laughs> And it starts with him in high school where he's a, you know, sort of a self-identifying high school loser without very many friends. Um, and in an effort to have an extracurricular activity to have one of his college, uh, college applications, he starts what's called the Paul Bearers Club, where he volunteers at local funeral homes to serve elderly and homeless that don't have any living relatives. Um, but of course, like he doesn't have very many friends and they don't stick around. You know, anyone who joins doesn't stick around for long, except there's an older He's not sure how much older, you know, a strange woman who joins the club that he names Mercy Brown, which is definitely a purposeful reference to a, a figure from local New England history slash folklore. Uh, anyway, so it's a found memoir. So Art's writing the memoir, but who found the memoir, were, memoir was Mercy. And she comments at the end of every chapters and she comments like in the in the margins stuff, too, which is hopefully fun for the reader. And yeah, so Mercy may or may not be this actual supernatural kind of being that's referenced by her name. Yeah, this, this is fantastic. I'm going to try and talk around spoilers. I don't want to. I don't want to ruin the experience for anyone. Yeah. Uh, the uh, can can you talk about your decision to include Mercy's commentary? Because I got the first edition paperback with the red ink, and this was a like. There's the story, and then there was the medium. And both right. of those were in perfect alignment for me, and I found it completely captivating. Can you talk about your decision-making process to include Mercy's commentary? Yeah, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, 
I mean, part of it just came from like a literal logic experiment, almost as I just described it, like uh, described the book, where it's like, oh, okay, it's going to be a found memoir. And I said, okay, who found the memoir? Um, you know, once I sort of did some research and scratched out character ideas, you know, and what I wanted Art and Mercy's relationship, like a sort of very complicated, maybe sometimes toxic friendship. I knew, okay, if she found the memoir, she's not going to be able to resist commenting. Uh, and, and that would include actually not waiting until the end of a chapter, but like, you know, scrolling stuff into the margins. Uh, so, you know, I'm a sucker for fun narrative, uh, I don't know, experimentation or technique like, uh, techniques like that. So once I hit on that, I was like, oh, I, I definitely want to do that and hopefully, you know, enhance the, the story. Like I didn't want it just to be there to be a gimmick. Um, it was also a fun way for me to have two unreliable narrators in one book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm the writer. Me is so curious. Did you, did you write arts narrative and then go back to the beginning and, and, and do mercies or were you doing them at the same time? Yeah, I was doing them at the same time. Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure like once I went back, I might've added one or two, but generally I would say, actually, I think I took out more than I added in. Um, yeah, as I was going to me, that was kind of the fun part. It was like, Oh, like, you know, I'm writing arts thing and I know I can hear mercy, you know, cause sometimes she's, her voice is like the inner editor that I have. Um, so it was kind of easy for her comment sometimes just to work their way in. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, you, you kind of have, there's a few layers here. I mean, you talked about the, the found memoir, the, uh, two unreliable narrators, uh, you set this in the late eighties, uh, you know, I don't like, to me, this is just the, you know, this is the perfect experience. Like this is what I'm looking for. Um, do you, do you think a lot about archetypal readers or are you more interested in telling the story that's in your head that you need to get out? Yeah. I, I mean, I try, I mean, everybody, I guess on some level thinks about readers. I try not to, cause it feels like it's hard enough to, to write the story the best way I think I can write it without trying to think of sort of nebulous readership, although I, we, I've already spent time talking about readers and how they change or don't change. So I guess I do think about them. But for me, the writer's trust is, hey, you know, I want to read this book. I hope there's enough readers out there like me who want to read it. But that said, I knew going into this book, and it was a little bit of a worry. It's like, wow, this is a very Gen X kind of thing. <laughs> you know, I hope that, you know, readers who aren't Gen Xers can get something out of it or, or, or take something away from it. Because it did definitely feel like, okay, this is so of its, even though some of the book, a big chunk of the book takes place in modern times, um, you know, art is, I don't know, a stereotype of a Gen Xer in a lot of ways, or at least, the, you know, myself or a lot of the ones that I know. Um, you know, I hope that was part of the fun for some readers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Husker Du stuff obviously was was fantastic. Uh, but I never felt like you you overplayed that hand, that nostalgic effect. I felt like everything that you were including served the story. Um, and, uh, Thank you. yeah, that, so like, I think it, it, even if you're not a Gen Xer, I think you would appreciate the, the setting and the world that you've created there. Yeah. I think my other worry is probably more than the Gen X part of it was, you know, art is definitely super, you know, maudlin and, and gothy, you know, purposefully. And that was part of the reason having mercy too, to help undercut some of that. Cause I think it was just art that would be a little bit hard to take, but also that was kind of purposeful too, because I mean, art clearly by the end of the book is, you know, definitely has anxiety and is depressed. And I don't know, that's kind of the idea is like, you know, I'm sure everyone listening has had either experience with it or have had experience with loved ones, friends who, who suffer from uh, anxiety and depression. And, you know, if you're honest with you, it's hard to be around people like that because you just want to help them. And like, and sometimes it's hard to not understand, like, how come like you're not happier? Like you've got all this stuff going on in your life. Um, and I guess just a natural human reaction to, you know, seeing someone who's suffering from an illness that like it's impossible, you know, that you can't pinpoint like you can't a physical illness, right? Um, you know, so that was part of art was like to see how much patience he, you would, you know, the reader would have for him. Um, you know, and some people have more patience from him, for him than others did. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've noticed the the past couple books, you, uh, I, I wouldn't call them experimental, but I think you're, you're more exploratory. You're, you're, um, you're establishing ideas and concepts that are unconventional in a, in a, in a very good way. Going back to the beginning of our conversation, do you feel like that's, that's a, uh, something authors have to earn or is that something you think you can start out doing? Oh yeah. I'm sure there are you know, people who can start off doing that. Um, I mean like Mark Danielewski's first novel, right? <laughs> I mean, that was his start was house of leaves. Um, yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's always, you know, for as much as I employ sort of typographical, 
you know, experimental tricks for lack of a better term. I don't mean trick either because it sounds like it's cheap, like it's a twist. But, you know, whatever I do, my hope is that it has to be there. Like I can't, like I couldn't have just taken it out and not have the story change. Like I think the story would have been a lot different if I had taken Mercy's, um, you know, marginal marginalia comments out of the book. It wouldn't be the same book. I mean, so that's always, for me, that's the abiding concern is, okay, you know, I, I know I want to do like cool, weird things like that, but it has to be there for a purpose. You know, a great example of that would be like my story, uh, Notes from the Dog Walkers, which was in Growing Things. And, you know, it's a novella that it's told through notes left by dog walkers. And I had had that like idea, that narrative idea for a long, long time, almost like two years before I wrote it, because I had no story to go with it. Like, I just didn't want it to be a, a gimmick. I had to find a way that the story I told had to sort of use that that uh, that narrative approach. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's it's different than sort of high concept. Like I think Blake Crouch has talked about big ideas more so in high concept. Whereas it is it, it seems like your your innovative angle is is finding that element of storytelling and then and then developing the story around it. And uh, and it seems like you're really patient with that process. Yeah, uh, thanks. That's a cool way of putting it. <laughs> I'm gonna steal that. Uh, yeah, please. Um, I don't know. I think I mean think like what's a I don't know. Mo- most of the time I'm trying to tell stories about now, right? I'm trying to affect the readers who are living now. And, and you know, to me, living in the 21st century where, you know, not only is storytelling been splintered into so many different ways, but just like like almost our identities and existence have been split into virtual and, and real, right? We, we've got our social media virtual selves and we've got our real selves and everything just seems so both at the same time, like split, but also sort of interwoven. So it only makes sense to me that, you know, even if I'm sort of, uh, stuck to the page, like I'm writing a story. That's not to say you can't have sort of some of that experience weave its way in by like a, a different technique or even just like in what the story's about. Yeah. Yeah. You've, uh, you've, um, spent most of your life in academia and you are, uh, you're for, for listeners who might not know you're in a, in a sabbatical year, you have, you have one year, what what is um, I have one year. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds oh, no, terrible. The right? is ticking, yeah. <laughs> uh, in in an ideal situation when when it comes time to either renew your contract or not, like what in your mind, what does your ideal situation look like at that moment? Oh, I don't know. Um I mean you know, who's listening from school? <laughs> I mean, it's sort of I mean, it feels like a coin flip. I feel like I'm probably gonna go back. Partly just due to, I don't know, financial realities of like, you know, my son just finished his last year of college and my daughter starting her first year next September. And, you know, college is quite expensive. Um, um, so I don't know, like I've always been weary of of trying to, you know, keep that, <laughs> you know, keep that idea there. Like for me, teaching, I mean, I've always loved teaching, but it's definitely been a boon to my writing because one of the th- one of the benefits from teaching to my writing was I never felt pressure to like try to chase trends or chase the market, which I think is impossible, by the way. Um, I'm certainly not able to like read the future and what people are going to be interested, you know. Um, but the idea that, hey, I had this job that gives our family health insurance as crappy as it is. And, you know, it definitely felt like this financial safety net that allowed me to say, you know what, if I'm going to spend, you know, 12 to 15 run, 12 to 15 months working on this book, you know, I'm going to work on the book that interests me the most, you know, not like just saying, hey, I'm going to chase this sort of thing. Um, no, I mean, that's still the case now that I'm on sabbatical. I'm working on a novel that I'm interested in. It's not like, you know, that part hasn't changed, but it was sort of like a comforting feeling, you know, to have that, that just professional part, like you're going to get paid whether or not this book sells. Uh, I really admire and respect writers who, uh, who are making a living from writing because, I mean, it's, that's a whole other pressure that, you know, I don't know if I could handle it. So I don't know. It's a part of a little bit about this year is seeing, you know, how, how that goes. How, how do I handle that? It's yeah, that's such an astute observation. I mean, the um, the the security you have when you have a day job is is highly underrated. You know, I think if you right. talk to a lot of uh, aspiring writers, their dream is to, no pun intended, sit in the cabin in the woods by themselves and yeah. and type away. But like, there's a whole lot more to it. And and depending on your creativity to to pay the mortgage and to pay the college tuition is quite a demanding ask. Yeah. Yeah. What's, uh, what's been one of the adjustments you've had to make, uh, when you got to September of this year and looked up and you weren't in a classroom? <laughs> yeah, no, that was definitely weird. Uh, 
I I tried to like, you know, like my, my classes are like about three hours total. That doesn't count coaching if I'm coaching, but I tried to model at least my morning, but like what my school schedule would look like, you know, so I'd get up and try to write for three hours, you know, and then walk my dog, you know, do some exercise because I've been sitting for a long time. And then, you know, maybe do some stuff in the afternoon too. So I, I did try to keep, and I have tried to keep to a schedule. It really worked in September, but, you know, October is like the month for horror writers. So I kind of, because I was on sabbatical, I, I, I almost like foolishly said yes to every interview or event <laughs> or other kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, all, all of which were fun, but it, it made for like, man, it's like, how did I do this before? Like, I've asked myself that a couple of times, like, <laughs> feels like I've been really busy and I didn't get a super ton of writing done in October compared to what I imagined that I would. Um, yeah, so I mean, so there's that part of it too. Um, but, you know, it's been very cool. I mean, just on a personal side, like it was, uh, you know, I was also busy because I was being a uh, soccer super fan for my daughter's high school mm-hmm. team. You know, she's a senior and a captain and they had like their best season in almost 20 years. So that was a utter joy to be able to, you know, to watch. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, how about some uh, updates on uh, Cabin? I know that we there's a feature film on the way and, and uh, yeah. I'd love to hear some more about that. Yeah, so it'll be out February 3rd. Um, I don't know a tool a whole lot more. Like, I mean, I assume they're pretty much done. I mean, uh, they, I mean, they finished filming at June 10th, and I did go to visit the set in May for a couple of days, which was a lot of fun. You know, really, <laughs> I mean, really weird, but like in the best possible way. Yeah, so since then, you know, I don't know. Uh, like, I, like I said, they don't tell me, like I had no idea the trailer was gonna drop when it dropped. Um, and stuff like that. I assume I get to go to the <laughs> to the premiere. That's what it says in my contract. But you know, we'll see how that goes. Um, there is going to be sort of a new edition of the book that features like the poster art, essentially. How are you really going to get cool. a tie-in for it? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that'll be out like four days after the movie comes out initially. Okay. Um. Yeah. So I don't know. It's. A, I mean, there, I felt like you know there was more of a flurry of stuff in the spring, which is weird because I mean the spring was when it was pre-production, and I was getting asked questions by Knight and his producer sometimes, like, "Hey, what are these character motivations?" Or, "Hey, where did you come up with uh, the weapons? Like, what'd you use as a model?" You know, and I would send them some stuff that I had. Um, but, but yeah, but once like filming was done, it was like, <laughs> yeah, any information you know has been hard to get or not necessarily shared freely with me yeah <laughs> which is fine no i'm not in the editing room obviously right, right. yeah yeah i mean it's it's got to be surreal uh i mean when you went to the set did you have like a, a director's chair with your name on it next to m night and he was <laughs> waiting with a cup of coffee for you something like that yeah no no chair with my name on it unfortunately <laughs> uh i did though spence so the part that i got to see was they were shooting a lot of the interior shots inside the cabin which is most of the movie right so they built this cabin inside a big warehouse, like 30 minutes from downtown Philly. Um, and so the cabin on the outside, you know, they didn't bother finishing touches, but it was just surrounded by banks of lights because they could better control the lighting as opposed to like being out in the woods and, you know, waiting for a cloudy day or something. So, that, I mean, that was just sort of weird because you would be in the cabin and the lighting would feel like, oh, this is midday or no, it's dusk. But it'd be like, you know, seven o'clock at night in the real world outside, but they messed with my head because I was inside this cabin. There was this window, but the window was only to like the rest of the warehouse. Um, but, you know, what they made, they just made this absolutely beautiful cabin. It's actually kind of heartbreaking to think that I don't know what they, when they tear it down, I don't know what they do with all that beautiful wood that people would stab for to have, like in a cabin on a pond or a lake somewhere. Um, so, no, it was a very, uh, like you said, you know, messed with your head sort of experience. It's but like in a cool way. Yeah. Um, I, I never imagined, I know Stephen King once said somewhere that like a few times for him, it's like, oh, I felt like I was walking into my own head and seeing the story. And that's not, it didn't feel like that at all, just because, you know, the images I have of that novel and the story are so set in my head. Um, you know, I wasn't imagining Dave Batista. I mean, he's great. <laughs> you know, I was imagining, you know, sort of other people, you know, and the cabin looked different, but that's fine. Uh, but it was pretty neat to, obviously, you know, to hear him say some of the lines that like right out of the book. And, you know, I think the character, I think the actors especially are going to really, uh, they really, from what I saw, get sort of like the emotional core of the story and, you know, and, and, and do that well when their performances. Nice. I, I know that you're, you're getting more into screenwriting. Uh, did that set visit have any effect on your uh, motivation to, to work on your screenplays? Um, well, 
I mean, insofar as like, hey, you know, I've got a movie or a book being adapted, maybe this will give me more opportunities. It was more just thinking like that. Um, but no, definitely being there was instructive because I'm working on a novel now that's called Horror Movie and Novel. Um, <laughs> Sold. So like, <laughs> yeah. So the, the set visit definitely helped, you know, because now I just from first person experience knew a little bit more about what a set looked like. And, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the other jobs, including the guy who was like the script supervisor, super nice guy. Um, I felt like he secretly ran everything, like how much he was in charge of, you know, in charge of continuity, but like, you know, when they would do the same shot of like, or the, you know, they would film the same bit of a scene like three or four times, like Knight would tell him which one he wanted to keep or which two. So I, anyway, just seeing like some of the nuts and bolts of that what was interesting and just informative for, you know, the book that I'm working on, not so much the screenwriting part of things. Excellent. Um, but no, it all helps. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great way to kind of wrap us up. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the book you're working on or any other projects you've, you're working on right now? Yeah, yeah. So, well, the next book coming out next summer is called um, The Beast You Are, um, and it's a short story collection. And so I'd say like two-thirds of it are stories that, it, that were published in the anthologies, you know, in the last decade or so. But I did write one big original story that's like a third of the book, 30,000 words. Uh, and it's an anthropomorphic animal novella. Uh, written in free verse, because <laughs> uh, if Paul Verde Club didn't kill my career, I'm trying to really <laughs> kill it with uh, anthropomorphic animal novella in free verse. <laughs> so that's coming out in July. Um, actually, that novella was so much fun to write. Uh, I hope that's a good sign. And then I mentioned a uh, horror movie, a novel is due to my publisher in May. You know, presumably that would come out the following summer. Before we get to talking about Paul's interview, quick reminder that if you are looking to create professional print books and ebooks easily with the all-in-one book writing software, check out Atticus. It's a book editor uh, with a word count, goal tracking, cloud storage, and you can format everything in three steps. Do that at atticus.io. Let's talk about Paul Tremblay. Christine, I want to start with you because I know you're uh, a big fan of music of that era, uh, and, uh, and, and Paul's always incorporating that. So thoughts on the interview? Yeah, I am a big uh, music fan of that era. You know, I was a bit of an alt-rock and metal girl, so that was my music of that era. So, yeah, you know, Metallica and Pantera are coming to Detroit, so we've been talking about that, trying to get you to come visit. But um, the one thing that I found really interesting was when you guys talked about the difference between kind of crystallized knowledge and fluid intelligence and how fast we do things, and I just wonder... What is that about? I find as I get older, it's like, is it that I'm doing more or does it just take me longer to do the same amount? Um, or am I just more selective about what I do now? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I'd love to hear JD's thoughts because JD and I are the exact same age and he seems to be running hotter and faster than 20 year olds. JD, uh, what's your secret, man? I, honestly, I just have extra brain cells. <laughs> I, I feel I feel like I could lose a few just to you know kind of dumb myself down to the rest of the the world's population. Um, <laughs> no, I, I you know like I, I this is going to sound I don't want to bring everybody down, but like I, I had a buddy of mine in high school who died, um, and like it it you know up until that point we all sort of thought we were invincible, like you know you can't die when you're 17 years old, but but he went and died, um, and that changed a lot of things for me. It made me really realize you know that life is a lot shorter than we think it is. Um, you know, you don't know if you have a tomorrow. Um, and you know, for me, like the idea of being 80, 90 years old, sitting on a porch somewhere going, Oh, wish I wish I would have done this. Like, I don't ever want to have that thought. Like I, I would rather be on that porch, you know, like in complete pain because I've broken every bone, you know, like I've done everything that I could ever possibly want to do in life. Um, so that, that's a, a major driving factor for me. Um, right now it's just, you know, it's having a daughter too, you know, like writing books, you know, that's a way for me to leave a legacy. You know, like I, my father passed away on, that's 12 years ago now. Um, and I barely knew the man. Um, you know, so like the fact that I'll have books out there that my daughter can reference and things like that, like, I don't know, th- those kind of things drive me and make me, make me keep going. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. Cause, uh, I don't know. I, I, there's certain things like I just don't have the drive for that. Like, or I just care less about them. And, uh, I don't, I don't know. Like I, it, it seems at first, I thought it's like it's the age, but I think it's it's probably a mix of age and personality and experience and mindset. It's probably all of that. Yeah, it's, it's a combination of all of it, you know. And, and it's funny because it translates to other things, you know. Like right now, the stock market is a complete mess. But like the first time I saw the stock market like this, you know, was 
25 years ago, you know, maybe maybe longer. And that one freaked me out because it was the first time that I saw the stock market like this. Um, now it doesn't bother me at all. When the stock market drops a thousand points, I'm out there buying stuff because unless the world is going to end the next day, like those things will come back. So like, you, you know, you just you learn all that with time. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, in your younger years, you know, you, you, know, pe- you, know, you tend to really lean in towards politics and, you know, getting out there and protesting or doing this or doing that. And then you get older and you realize that, you know, it, it may not make the difference that you thought that it did back then. Um, you know, I just read a Dean Koontz book um, that was written in, I think it was 1978. And he was talking, like he mentioned a couple political things and it was immigration. It was, you know, uh, you know, like it was basically the same hot topics that we have today. Um, but, you know, 50 years ago. So there's that too. I think been there and done that. We've, we're, we're getting older. We've, we've been there, done that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, one of the ways that I think that works into an author career, and, and this is, this is exactly where Paul is, is, is it seems like he's got sort of like this Blake Crouchian perspective. You see what I did there? Crouchian, you like that? Where, you know, he's, you know, he's not looking for just sort of like the pat story. Like he's, he's really looking for something different or something unique, even if it's something different for him. And, you know, using two unreliable narrators in a single book, like I couldn't think of another example of that. And the way that, that he did it with Paul Bear's Club was just masterful. I honestly, I love that he's not afraid to, to do that kind of thing. You know, like the cabin at the end of the world, like when you read that, um, you know, that ending is, will get you, you know, it's, you're either going to like it or you're going to hate it. And like, and he knew that, you know, cause I, I read the ARC and we talked about it before the book came out. He's like, people are going to either, they're going to pounce on me or they're going to, they're going to love it. But, but he's not afraid of it. And you know, the Bears club is just the same thing. And all of his books are kind of like that. And, you know, he, he tries to challenge himself a little bit with it. Um, and you know, that keeps it fun. It keeps it interesting. You know, and I think, you know, a lot of other writers out there aren't willing to do that and me being one of them like I, i'll challenge myself to a certain extent but not to the point where it's going to slow down the you know the the writing machine um i'm not willing to, to go that far paul is you know like he'll, he'll you know if it took him five years to write a book but it was the book that he wanted to write he'd be totally okay with that yeah yeah he uh the other thing he kind of talked about that i had really had me thinking was uh pacing um christine i'd like to know like what what's how do you know if your if your book is paced properly? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I think, you know, I'm not sure anyone really knows the answer. It was interesting to listen to him talk about it in terms of a uh, time period of a book, but I don't think that that is necessarily what pacing is because you think of like James Joyce and Ulysses, which is like 265,000 words over one day. That's not a fast-paced book. So I, th- I think it's more than that. I think it's word usage, tension. Um, I think a lot of things contribute to pacing, and I think I would really struggle to define exactly what that is other than you know it when you see it. Well, I've, I've been teaching it for years, so, you know, like it, for, for me, you know, it's about white space on the page, um, shorter sentences. You know, like if you want to speed things up, you basically, your paragraphs are short. You know, you, you could have a one-word paragraph. Your sentences are short. Your dialogue is clipped, um, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I've, I've, my chapters get shorter and shorter, and, like, I, I make a conscious effort to do that. You know, when, it, when I hit that, you know, it's like 75% mark in the book, you know, I make sure that my chapters are getting a little bit shorter each time. And when I get to the end of whatever the climax is in the book, you know, some, like the chapter I wrote today is maybe 260 words you know it's barely anything but you know like the the tension is ratcheted up so high that it's it's you know it's it keeps the pacing moving and the, the reader is just bouncing everywhere and then you know i'm going to finally slow it down because the action is over and i can write a, a longer chapter again and kind of give everybody a chance to breathe uh, but you know that's stuff that i've learned from from reading over and over and over and over again you know and i'm sure there's books that talk about it but you know like when i go back and i do the rewrite on one of my books or the you know just to reread you know basically working on that final draft, you know, I watch for that because you're not going to catch it like as you're writing the book. Not really. Um, you know, you could write a 250 word chapter, um, but you know, it might take you three hours to, to hammer it out because sometimes those, those are the hardest ones to write to try and be so con- concise. So it's when you're actually looking at the book as a reader, I think when you really pick on, you know, pick up on whether your pacing is where it needs to be or not. Um, and you have to, you know, if you're writing thrillers, you have to look for those, those slow spots. If you've got a slow spot, that's, you know, it, in the climax of your book, you know, you need to trim it up. You need to change something. The other thing that was really interesting, we didn't spend a ton of time on it, but, uh, the adaptations. So cabins coming out in February, talked a little bit about, uh, Paul's interaction with M. Night, and it, it sounds pretty consistent, you know, that you know the author doesn't get all that much say in it, but they're kind of associated with it. Uh, I'm sure that's been your experience as well, J.D. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not as far along as as they are. They haven't actually started principal photography on any of my stuff. Um, you know, at this point, I'm really working with the the writers and the producers and and fleshing out the actual story. Um, but yeah, I, that's what I hear from virtually everybody. You know, when they, when they bring the author on set, you're basically there as a you know a tourist or a prop. You know, they're going to walk you through, but you know, they're not going. Yeah, you know, they're going to show you what they want you to see. Um, they're going to sit you down where they want you to sit. They don't want to hear from you. They definitely don't want your opinion because whatever is being filmed is is already you know it's been decided long before you got there um so unless you're actually part of the project um you know which is a fine line too because i'm an executive producer on a lot of mine so i tend to be a little bit more involved i think than some authors are um which which i enjoy too but yeah for the most part that machine is is a well-oiled machine and it's and it's working on its own whether you're there or not well definitely looking forward to that that film uh M Knight's one of my favorites, and uh, yeah, I'll be curious to see what he what he does uh, with the adaptation. So, yeah, always great to have Paul on the show. Uh, his second appearance, so you know he's uh, he's technically a regular now. Uh, but uh, if you're going to read Paul Bear's Club, definitely recommend getting it on paper so that you can get uh, the full experience. So, uh, JD, who do we got up next week? Next week, we've got Tim Wagner, his first novel released in 2001, and he's published, I believe, about 50 books since then. Um, he does a lot of tie-ins for um, TV shows. He's done stuff like Supernatural, Alien, Doctor Who, um, even feature films, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and uh, Transformers. Um, so this guy's all over the board, but he's fun to talk to. So Tim Wagner. Excellent. It's going to be fun. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Authors, want to get paid to do what you love? Enroll at Ghostwriting University, the only all-in-one online course taught by one of the world's best co-writers, Alex Cody Foster. Learn how to conduct fascinating interviews, craft a compelling book proposal, find your white whale, and build a dazzling portfolio that attracts highly lucrative deals. If you can write, GU can teach you how to launch a successful ghostwriting business. Join now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.